shows you how Asian I am. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, please open to First John. First John chapter two, verse seven to eleven. This is going to be the passage that we'll look at tonight. First John chapter two, verse seven to eleven. If this, I think, yeah, if there, if you're visiting or this is your first, or you haven't been here for a while, we're going through the book of First John. Uh, we decided to go through this book mainly because uh, we want our church, or at least this fellowship group, it just so happens that all the other fellowship groups also doing First John. Um, but we want our group here to be people that are defined by love. Um, and I think this book is really good at challenging our own walk with the Lord because if we don't love the way that Christ loves and there's a possibility that the love of Christ is not in us. Um, so this is really something that we've been thinking about in terms of the leadership. Like how can we uh, cause our group to be more mature, to be more Christ-like? And we decided to let's go, let's go back to the fundamentals. Let's go back to um, an epistle that um, is known as uh, the epistle of love because it really highlights the idea of loving Christ and then loving others. First John chapter 2, verse 7-11. I'm going to read this and uh, we can get on with the message. First John chapter 2, verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard, yet I am writing you a new commandment, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this privilege, again, to study and behold your word. And Lord, we know that um, we are in constant need of reminders that we need to submit to your word. We were so easily forgetful of the truth that you've revealed in us in our devotional times, in our when we listen to sermons. But Lord, please remind us, convict us, have your word be written in our hearts so that we can please you with our lives. Give us a greater affection and love for you so that we can love those that are in the church. Lord, thank you for this time. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. The original polygraph was intended to figure out and discern whether or not someone is lying. Uh, we know scripture that that is impossible because only God can discern the heart. Man's heart is so deceitfully wicked that there's no way that you can discern it. But there are still people that try to figure that out. They want to know what is going on in the heart's man. So they create this one person named William Marston created the polygraph. And uh, a little side note, William Marston, he also created Wonder Woman. He's a man of multiple, he could do a whole bunch of things. He created the Wonder He created Wonder Woman. And if you remember Wonder Woman, she has the, the lasso of truth. And I think that's part of the connected to his desire to figure out whether or not someone is lying or not. But anyways, he invented this machine called the polygraph, and the very first instance that this was ever used in a, in a, in a real case was actually here in Berkeley. Um, not here in Berkeley, like, like in the Bay Area, but Berkeley across the Bay. Um, there was an incident where a whole bunch of um, 
things from a woman's dorm was taken, and they had no idea who it was. And this detective, by the name of John Larson, uh, he was uh, one of the few police officers that actually had a PhD. So he, he thought, hey, let's try to use science to solve crime. So he heard about this invention that William Marston's made, and he thought, hey, let's try this. So he, he asked him if he can borrow this machine, and he did his normal uh, detective work, and he narrowed down the, uh, he narrowed down, um, the suspects, and uh, he found this one lady named Helen Graham. Helen Graham. And he, just, he did the test, like, hey, we're going to put you on this machine, uh, and we're going to ask you a series of questions. And he started asking, uh, you know, basic questions, like, what is your name, when is your birthday, just to kind of give, like, a level response. And then he started asking questions, like, did you steal the things from the girls' dorms? And then she said, no. And then the thing was like, and it's like, okay, the machine is saying that you're lying. And then she's like, I am not lying, I'm telling the truth. And he just kept doing that. And she got so frustrated and mad that she started attacking the machine. And eventually she confessed, like, yeah, I did, it was me. Although it is not possible for anyone to fully discern the heart and minds of an individual, it can be tested in terms of uh, the way that we, in terms of, for believers, we understand that the only test that we have is really a love test. The test for the Christian or professing Christian is how they show love to one another. Jesus Christ said in John 13, 35, By this all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Oftentimes in our life, uh, we try to pit God's word against our own will. It becomes an opinion versus obedience. Um, God's word is, is never an option. It demands and expects us to love in the way that he loves. He commands us to love people, especially those that are in the church, and we need to do that. The health of a church is never driven by any programs or events. But rather, it's, it's, it can be tested by its love. When a church loves, that's how you know a church is healthy. And the inverse is also true. If a church does not love one another, then the church is not healthy. And there's a connection between loving truth and loving one another. If you, do, if you don't love one another, it shows that you don't love truth. You see the connection? If you, if you hate truth, then you will hate one another. And this is the love test. I titled the sermon the love test for that reason. Because in this section here, we're going to see how John makes a connection about walking in the light, being, in, in, being uh, in fellowship with the Lord, and how you love one another. Verse 7. Dear friends, I'm writing, I am not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have heard from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. John continues his letter by reminding them of something that they should know. The true, that true life is found only when a person loves another. John begins by saying that he's not writing something new, but something that they have heard before. Whereas the beginning of this chapter, he gives the reader a test that's based on following God's word. This is a test on love. Whereas last week's message was about how if you love God, you will keep his commandments. And then he narrows down to what that looks like here. It has, do you love your brothers and sisters in the faith? Why does John call this an old and new commandment at the same time? was new for those who have forgotten. And if you are someone that's familiar with the life of Jesus and his ministry, you would have understand that this is exactly what Christ has expected from his disciples. In the same way, this is an old command because this is not something that's only 
is not something that only Jesus said. In fact, in Leviticus 19, verse 18, let me flip there. Leviticus 19, verse 18, it reads, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your, of, of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In Matthew 19, 19, it restates the same commandment, that we need to love our neighbors. Jesus, throughout his ministry, gave specific commands for his followers to love one another. The Apostle John writes this to counter the Gnostics. Remember, the Gnostics were a group of people that claimed that they have some special knowledge about Jesus that they did not have. Uh, and these people, uh, in a lot of ways, as we, we infer from the text, that these are people that are really angry and people that are filled with hate. And John's writing this to counter them. He's saying that these people are not true Christians. But if you are a true Christian, you are someone who's lo- who loves God and loves other people. John is speaking from a higher authority, mainly Jesus. John said that it was from the beginning, which refers to the events of the life of Jesus' ministry. Love is the greatest marker of who Jesus is. Christianity originates with Christ, and ever since he came, everything about him is love. It must have been, again, this Gnostic is an unloving group. Early on, John said that these Gnostics were living in sin, and sin is hurtful to others, and it's no surprise there that John is, is again, telling them that it is evident they are not followers of Christ because they do not love. I saw this, I remember when I was high school, I saw this, uh, it was like a social experiment kind of thing. They had this actress, um, I guess she wasn't like famous yet, so they just said, hey, why don't you walk around uh, this park in, uh, in New York and just try to ask people for help. Pretend that you're lost, uh, pretend you need help, ask them for, to use their cell phone, ask people for help, see what happens. So it was like broad daylight, she was walking around, and she was asking people for help, and everyone was paying her attention. Uh, they were just like, oh, hey, uh, can you help me uh, find this thing? Oh, yeah, sure, I'll help you. And all these people just flock around her and like try to like, get her attention. It's like, yeah, I'll help you, I'll help you. And like, oh, thanks. And then after that, she, they, they tried the experiment again, but they made her wear a fat suit. They made her wear this fat suit, and they said, okay, now go around the park again, and ask the same questions. So she went around in this fat suit, and then she started asking for people for help, for their cell phones, and people ignored her. People just walked away. They didn't pay attention until she made herself really obvious, and people were like, okay, fine, fine, uh, yeah, here's my phone, or here, let me help you with that. It took a lot more effort, just mainly because of her appearance. Now, we understand that the superficial way of love, that's how the world acts. But this should not be the way for the Christian. We as Christians must love without expecting anything in return. We must love without any sort of discrimination. Because this is how Christ loved us. God's love is pure. His love, he loves us despite how ugly we are. There was nothing about us that was beautiful or lovely. And yet God was still willing to show us his greatest affection towards us by dying on the cross for us. So how are you in terms of loving those in the church that you think is unlovely? The sad reality is that we need to work in our own hearts from gravitating to those that we think are lovely. Oh, that's the popular one person, or that's the person that looks uh, good, or that person is funny. 
You know, the things that are just uh, uh, superficial things are, oh, I like to, I'm gravitating. I want to spend time with this person because their lifestyle or how much money they make. In reality, if we stripped away Christianity, most of us would not spend time with one another. The thing that grounds us, the one that brings us all together, is not our backgrounds, it's not our social status, it's not our ethnicity, it's not our life stage, but it's Christ. And if it isn't for, if it isn't Christ, then I would dare them to say that most of us would not be in each other's lives. We would not care for one another if it's not for Christ. Most of us would not be here on Friday night if it wasn't for Christ. One of the greatest surprises and blessings as a Christian in any Bible-believing church is that we are a family, that we share something so much more greater than what we have in this life. This is a unique type of love that actually transcends all that we are in this life. We are called to love deeply and have connections with one another that goes beyond the superficial things in this life. Yet if we were honest with ourselves, sometimes because of those differences, we find some people more interesting than others. And again, in reality, the love of Christ that Christians should have should be shared and is not preferential. It does not play favorites. It does not have certain privileged people in mind. And James tells us that we, if we show favorites, if we play favorites with the individual, if we like, spend more time with the rich people as opposed to the poor, that we love the rich people in the church as opposed to the poor people, that is considered sin. You're saying that one person is more valuable based on something external, except instead of seeing this person as something one that's valuable and purchased by the blood of Christ. You are to have your heart and mind focus on Christ if you want to love like Christ. You can't love someone that you can't, if you can't love someone that you can't see, how can you expect to love someone that you cannot see? This is what John, later in, John, in 1 John 4, verse 20, this is exactly what it says. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love a God whom he cannot see. If you claim to reflect God, if you claim to be a Christian, and you claim to have a new birth, then you must love those that God has loved as well. You need to love those that are brought into the body of Christ. This is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And we need to love them, love the church, the way Christ loves the church. Christ demonstrates his love, and it's a self-giving kind of love. He fulfilled the law through his obedience, and something that no one has ever done will ever see again. No one can fulfill God's law and then give the rewards, to, give the rewards of obedience to someone else. Look at verse 8. Yet I'm writing you a new commandment, which is, True in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Notice how this verse begins by saying, on the other hand, uh, on certain translations, or in the CSB I read, I just read, is, yet I am writing. This is a kind of love that is new, and it is, it's kind of new, but it's, it's in the church that's distinct. New believers are hearing this and seeing this as they read this. This is new to them. The newness of this command lies in the fact that it is being fulfilled in a way that has never been fulfilled in the past. We call this a doctrine of a new covenant that the Lord in the Old Testament time did not indwell in the, in the life of the believers, that they did not have the ability to fulfill God's command. 
But as new covenant believers, as people that are now in this New Testament era, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, so now we can faithfully live for him. We can love in the way that he expects us to love. We can now love in such a way that it was not possible before. We are people with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us so that we can fulfill the greatest commandment in love. Everything that Christ has done, every part of his life radiated love, even during his death. All of existence has ever seen a love quite like this. Jesus Christ is the quintessential display of love. Jesus is the standard of love. He is the model of love. Again, before in the Old Testament, they were commanded to love, but they were unable to do so because the Spirit wasn't indwelling in them. That's why they kept having to offer sacrifices. The, the law condemned them. They realized when they saw God's law, they were unable to fulfill it. But now we are free from the bondage of sin. Now we are free to fulfill the law of Christ. He fulfilled it, and he became the model for us and the template for us. But Jesus goes beyond that he goes beyond just uh, he goes beyond that in that he pro- also promises us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. He also gives a template. He gives the example. This is why it's both old and new. It's an old commandment that well, that people weren't able to be fulfilled until now. If you think about the life of Christ, even when he was dying, he showed a love for those that were with him, and even those that were against him. Right? You remember Jesus said, "Like, please forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing." And when Jesus' mom was watching him die, he told John to take care of his earthly mother. This is the type of love that Jesus has. He showed a tremendous amount of love for everyone, both friends and foe. And can you say that this is the type of love that you have towards one another in the church? Can you say that your love matches that of Christ, or at least in the same trajectory of Christ? Think about that person that annoys you regularly or that person that just rubs you the wrong way? What do you think about when you see them in church? What comes to your mind? Do you wish, oh, I wish that they just find another job and go in, go find another church to be a part of? Do you, do you harvest some sort of bitterness? Do you want to keep your distance from them? What do you think about when, you, when there's someone in the church that bugs you? Do you love them or do you try to avoid them? The end of this verse speaks about how the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Jesus comes into the world as a representative as light into darkness. John repeats this motif throughout this book that he stated earlier that Jesus is light. Uh, uh, he's already shining and Jesus is a genuine light in the world. This is what Jesus, even he said this in the Gospel of John in chapter 8, verse 12. Look at verse 9. The one who says that he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. There's a connection between being in the light and walking with Christ. A person can't claim that they are in the light and hate their fellow brothers and sisters in the faith unless they are in the darkness. There's no way around this. It's crystal clear. You either love those that are in the church, and if you are in the light, you will love those around you. But if you're in the darkness, you will hate them. There's just a natural response. You cannot say that you are in the light and hate the person next to you. And this, verb, this word hate here is in the present tense, which suggests a, a habitual action, something that you always do. You see that person, you just constantly think of evil thoughts about them. Things either you want them, things bad things you want them to that have happened to them or things that you want to do to them. 
to someone that's constantly dwelling and living in their hatred towards other people in the faith. John is describing someone who has a settled disposition, temperament, and conduct of hatred towards his fellow brothers and sisters. The believer who walks in the light shares a special relationship and intimacy with God. To walk in the light is to live out the life of God. To walk in the light is to live out the life of God. Just like it is impossible to serve two masters, so it is impossible for a person to claim that they are a Christian to have both love and hate in their own heart. You cannot have that in your heart. You can't have love and hatred if you call yourself a Christian. You must be filled with love. Love and light are antithesis to darkness and hatred. You can't have a combination of them both. You can't have light and hatred or darkness and love. It's one extreme or the other. The true Christian is someone that not only knows the light, but also loves their brothers and sisters in the faith. You cannot have it both ways. If someone sins against you in the church and you fail to reconcile that relationship with them or even have a desire to reconcile with that brother or sister in church, then you need to reassess your own heart. You need to challenge yourself, am I truly a Christian? How can you say that you're a believer and not forgive those in the church? As Christian becomes angry with a fellow Christian, it can grow into resentment over time. And if that resentment goes unrepentant, that resentment goes to hatred. And any type of sin will wreck your life. And hatred towards one another is no different. Consistent hatred towards people in the church is a sign of an unregenerate heart. If your lifestyle is constantly hatred towards other Christians, you must test yourself to see if you have a new heart. Anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ and does not love his brother or sister, they are blinded by darkness and are actually in the darkness. The one who is in darkness and belongs to darkness does not have any capacity or ability to love. Verse 10. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. The reality is that those who are truly living in the light must be loving towards one another. And this sounds really repetitive because it is. John tried to get into our, into our minds, into our hearts, that we need to get out of the darkness, get out of this hatred, and be in the light and to love one another. You cannot be in God's will and hate your brother. Jesus is our example. We are never more like Jesus than we, when we love and forgive people like the way Jesus loves and forgives others. If any of us are truly in love with the Lord, if we, are tr- if we truly belong to him, that we must love one another. There must be an unwavering nature of love in the church. If one loves his brothers and sisters, he's the, he is the one that truly abides in the light. And it's evident that this person truly has fellowship with Jesus and have a relationship with the one true God. However, the one that is filled with hate, that is someone who stumbles. At the very end of verse 10, it says there is no cause for stumbling in him. Stumbling is often used to describe someone that, that sins. You see that in Matthew, in the, book of, in the Gospels, where it says if you cause someone to stumble, that usually means if you cause someone to sin, it's better that you get, have a rock tied to your neck and thrown in the sea than to cause these little ones to sin. Stumbling in the scriptures 
have this connotation of falling into sin. You can see this in 1 Corinthians 8.13 as well as Revelation 2.14. The more sin is harvested and cultivated in our own hearts, the fruit of that is that we will live life inaccurately. Hatred distorts our perspective of people in our current situation. You know, if you look at our culture today, it is driven by hatred. Right? If you look at all of our cultural problems, it's at, at its heart a hatred towards God. They're all living in darkness. They don't understand why they're hating one another, but as they're doing, they're hating others as well. They don't see their own hypocrisy. Right? If you look at people that are, are racist, it's a form of self-righteousness that shows a distortion in their understanding of people bearing the image of God. They hate God, so they hate people with, with different kind of skin colors. People who are racist hate God's design for humanity. Or if you look at the LGBTQ people, they hate Christians because they have a hatred towards God designed for humanity. They have this hatred towards them that stem out of the hatred for what God expects of us. Hatred is sin that makes you think that you're standing right, but in fact you're actually stumbling. This is why John states that those who are in the light will have no cause for stumbling. They're walking uprightly because the standard of all morality is found in the God of Scripture. So for a Christian to love, to not love, yet claim to be in the light, you're mistaken because you can't be someone that claims to love while at the same time hating those that are in the church. Again, those two cannot coexist. But if you're walking in the faith that, that you profess, then naturally you will see those in the church the way the Lord sees them. You will love them the way that the Lord loves them. This is how we don't stumble. We are actually faithfully walking in accordance with Scripture, and there aren't there isn't any hatred in our hearts, that we will be walking uprightly with the Lord. So ask yourself, do you love God's people? Do you love them enough to serve them even when it's not easy to do so? Do you love the church enough to worship and live life with one another? Do you love them enough to forgive them when they've sinned against you? Verse 11, but the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Those who live in darkness are, the, are, the, those who live in darkness are that way because they are a child of darkness. If you are a child of the light, then you need to walk as such. But if you're living in darkness, then you're being ruled by the prince of darkness. Those who hate their fellow brothers and sisters in the church are blind. They're confused. They are lost. They do not know their actions are actually sinful. Hatred leads to spiritual blindness. There can't be hatred in our hearts if we have a new heart. Now, although it's true that certain Christians may fall into the sin of hatred, a true Christian cannot live long with such hatred. Those who exhibit ongoing hatred towards others make it clear to others and themselves that they have never experienced the love of Christ to begin with. The longer a person remains in their sin, the longer they allow the sin to fester in their lives, the longer they let sin stew in their hearts, eventually their, their conscience will get seared and it becomes a defining marker of their lives. Christians are to be known as people that love. And if we hate people, eventually that will become our characteristic. And that's an oxymoron. A Christian that hates doesn't work. We hate sin, yes. We hate the thing God hates, yes. But we do not hate one another. Usually those who fall into sin 
of hatred are always going to justify why they hate someone. You say, oh, this person did me wrong, or this person said something about me, or this person have something that I want. So they make excuses to justify their own sin. They make lame excuses to figure out why they don't want to listen to the Lord. There was an article I read um, from a pastor that used to be a pastor at Grace, and uh, he wrote this little blog post online as an illustration. So I'm like, no, in some ways, I'm going to steal his illustration. This is, this is in context of Grace Community Church, where you know, I used to serve. This is what he read. I'm again going to read this. While in seminary, I served in a college ministry of about 1,000 young people, many of whom were on the lookout for a spouse. College is a stage of life where people are old enough to marry, so dating is fraught with pressure and implications. Proposals were epidemic, as were rejections. Some nice girls didn't want to hurt their would-be suitors, so they concoct some sort of, it's not you, it's me excuse. But those, who, but those excuses were not always effective. She'd say, I'm just focusing on my studies. He'd hear, I'll marry you the day I graduate. She would say, I'm not looking for a long-term relationship right now. He would hear, he would say, let's not date with the pressure of marriage. She would say, I'm, not, I'm really busy with studies and ministries right now. He wants her to say, please change your schedule to be in all my classes, join all my small group, and show up in all my ministry events where I serve like a stalker so we can be together more. No matter what excuse the young lady professes, the desperate guy always spots a glimmer of false hope. Of course, when the, prop, when the popular guy asks the girl out, she drops everything, clears the schedule, moves heaven and earth to date him. So let's apply the ladies in our ministry with a script to spare everyone a lot of confusion. Quote, I do not want to get married in God's timing, but I'm not afraid of being single. But, I, but I'm not afraid of being single. I have fickle preferences that I don't always understand, nor should I always need to explain. I just know that you are not that guy. And if he asks to just hang out as friends, then the lady should say, quote, I'm afraid that if I spend time with you alone, then the person God has for me might think I'm with you, end quote. If that still didn't work, there was his last resort, the nuclear bond of rejection speeches. Quote, if you were the last male on earth, I'd assume that meant God wanted me to be single for the rest of my life so that the human species would die out. End quote. Of course, if she did like the guy or wanted to give him a chance at impressing her, is something I, quote, quote, something I encourage, she would be overcome with inconveniences. Most excuses are lame excuses. The truth is, if you don't want to date the guy, nothing he will do will change that. And if you do, nothing will stand in the way. You know, when I read that, I thought about, yeah, this is exactly the way people view Christ. If you truly love Christ, you will submit to him no matter what. You will not make any lame excuses to not follow him. You have to understand every excuse that you make to not submit to God is a lame excuse. Oh, I don't want to submit to, I don't want to repent because, because of whatever reason. That's a lame excuse. There are no such things as loopholes in terms of submitting to the word of God. There's never a good excuse to not repent. We oftentimes make these mental gymnastics trying to figure out a way to not love people that are in the church. 
When you think about this passage, you have to understand that every time you say, no, I will not love that person in the church, you are saying no to God. God expects us to follow his word, not to weigh it and think it's just some sort of opinion. Spiritual darkness is not a passive thing. It's something that you actively pursue. We choose to sin. And when we pursue sin, there'll be an increase in confusion and blindness. Continual hatred leads to more hatred and possibly to become, and the possibility to love becomes less and less. This is why those who are walking in the light cannot be living in darkness. They are in complete opposite of one another. You cannot call yourself a Christian and hate your brother and sister in the faith. Now, when I'm explaining this text, I'm going to just give us some application points. How do I do this? What are some principles that, what are some practical ways for me to, to show love to those that are in the body of Christ? How can I pass what we call the love test? Well, here's just some ways that I thought of, and these aren't um, extensive. There's just five that I have in mind. There could be more if you just think about how to apply in your context. But these are just five that I'm thinking about, that I thought about when I was, I was studying this passage. So you want to take notes. The first one is this. Be patient when wronged. Be patient when wrong. So what does this mean? Well, people in your life, and in, especially in the church, if you get to know them long enough, they will sin against you. They will hurt you in, in ways that maybe, whether intentional or not, you might get hurt by them. People will fail you. But yet, 2 Timothy 2.24, Paul writes that the, the Lord's slave must be patient when wrong. You know, this when we talk about 1 Corinthians 13, one of the attributes of love is patience, that we're not easily offended. This means that you're willing to be patient when people mess up or just, have, you know, just, they're just hard to deal with. Remember that our God is a God of patience. He, he showed his patience towards us when we sin against him regularly. And every time, you understand, when, when people usually sin against, or when people hurt us, generally, it's not really a sin. It's just more like they just bother us. They're just doing something that we, do not, we will not prefer. Sometimes it is sin, but most of the time it's just like they just, they just annoy us because of some personality quirk. But understand that what we, what we do to the Lord is, is sin. It's, in, it's like these huge, massive sin, and he's patient with those things. He's not like, struggling with being patient with our preferences. No, he's, he's a patient guy. He's waiting. In the Old Testament, it's called long-suffering. He, he's waiting on people to repent. And before we came to know the Lord, he was a patient God. He still is patient with us today. So how much more should we be when it comes to our brothers and sisters in the church? We should be willing to overlook the sins and shortcomings of others out of the love of Christ. We should realize that we should realize and remember that this is how the Lord treated us. He was patient, and that should compel us to be the same towards other people. When someone hurts you or do something sinful, learn to be patient. Ask God for the grace to, to show patience. And how that looks like is you don't respond in sin. You know, if someone bugs you, just respond in, 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 in kindness and in love. When someone says something mean to you, learn to just... You just learn to just return with a blessing. Say something nice in return. Thank them for the rude comment and out, of a, out of a genuine heart. And when you can't do that, ask God for the grace to do so. Every time when someone rubs you the wrong way, it's really to show you that you are not as lovable and willing and loving as you can. So you need to ask God for grace to be able to do those things. It is a mandate from Scripture to be patient with those in our lives. So that's the first one. Be patient when wrong. Second, be encouraging with your words. 
be encouraging with your words. Ephesians 4.29 tells us that our words need to give grace to those who hear. Colossians 4.6 says that it needs to be seasoned with salt. That means that it has this purifying effect. Our words should cause people to be more like Christ. It should be helpful. One of the things that, uh, one thing that is not helpful is when we insult one another, or we joke around with one another. Right? This is what Ephesians talks about, how we should have these coarse jesting. And I think in our culture, we are totally fine with that. We're so desensitized that we would just make fun of one another. But what makes Christians distinct is that we don't speak, in the, we don't speak like that. We don't talk like that. Our language and the things that we say and the way that we say it is different from the world. That's how when people look at us and they see how Christians interact, it should be totally different. When I was in high school, they, they thought it was a good idea to, to regulate morality. So one of the things that they tried to do is they, they made a banned word list. Like, this list had, like, 90-something words. The words, I was like, I didn't even know you can't say that, or you can't, like, that's a bad word? And then I, and I and it was like, you can't say, like, gosh. And I was like, why? What's wrong with gosh? And it's like, because it's too close to the word God. And it's like, okay, so what if I said, oh, my Buddha, is that okay? And they're like, no. Why? It's like, because we know what you're saying. It's like, so it's not really my words then, but it's really what the context, what, uh, context right? It's like, yes, but don't say those words. And they were, it was ridiculous because they had the stack of referrals and they were giving it out to the point where the teachers couldn't even hold it and were like, oh man, oh gosh. And like, hey, you just said it. And like, oh yeah, you're right. And it's like, do we write the teacher up for this? And I remember once asking, like I was having this philosophical debate with my principal about this. <laughs> and I said, you know, honestly, if you just recorded us and just compared to a public school, honestly, the issue is not with the words, it's with the heart. Like, what makes us different, really? Like, the way the high schoolers speak in the Christian context and the public school context is no different. So why would you try to address us with words as opposed to say, we need Jesus? And they're like, that's, that's a good point, but we still want to keep this rule. And they only held it up for like two months, and they gave up because, one, they're running out of referrals because like it's killing all these papers and trees and stuff like that. But, you know, as Christians, we should be different. We must be different. And the way that we communicate one another, it should be so it should be encouraging. It should build one another up. It shouldn't be a norm for Christians to tear down one another. If someone was to hear your words towards one another, would they say that your words are the words that Jesus would say? In the way that you talk with one another or even about one another, is that something Jesus would say? You want your words to be encouraging and filled with love. Be mindful in the way that you talk to one another and about one another. If it doesn't build up, then just don't say it. If you find yourself unable to do so, then the problem, again, is in your own heart. The person that's in the church, again, is valuable in the sight of the Lord because he purchased them with his blood. And your words need to be helpful. It needs to be encouraging. It needs to edify. It needs to build them up. To be encouraging with your words. Thirdly, be willing to expend yourself. Be willing to expend yourself. If you think, if you think of a life of Christ, if you think of his totality of life, you understand that his whole time on earth is to expend for us. How did Christ expend himself? He gave his life for us. He drained his, all of his life so that we could may, be made right with him. He, this is the infinite God coming down into a finite body and had to deal with the limitations of humanity. He had to, he had to eat. He had to sleep. He had to, he, he had to bear all that. He expended himself. He lived that perfect life. He fought temptation. He overcome it. 
so that we can be made right with him. This is how far the Lord was willing to go so that we can be made right with him, so we have a right relationship with him. And the Apostle Paul understood this principle. That's why in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, he said that he'll gladly be spent and, uh, he, he'll gladly be spent and be ex- expended for the souls of those in the church. And he did it because he loved that church. And if you want to be a, a person that's defined by love, you should be willing to expend your life to those around you. Do you love the church enough to be willing to give up your life for? This, looks, this may, for some of you, look like losing sleep for a little bit or putting more energy to serve the church, but this requires sacrifice and being other-focused. It means that you're willing to serve whatever, whenever there's a need that is brought up. Whether it's making time to have coffee during your break or meeting with one another before or after work, these things require you to give up some level of comfort so that you can serve and care for one another. We see that in the life of Christ and even the life of the apostles and this is what we need to be. We need to be a people that are willing to expend ourselves. Not only that, but fourth, be willing to take initiative. You notice that in the gospel, God took the initiative to save us. Ephesians 1 4 tells us that he chose us. Uh, before the foundation of the world, he chose us. He was the first one who acted. He initiated to redeem us from our sins. God took the first step in the, in the redemption process. God acted first to begin the relationship with us. And if we were to be like Christ in that way, we need to take initiative as well. We need to be willing to act. We need to go and engage those around us. Don't be a whiner and complain how no one wants to spend time with you. No, focus on other people. Take initiative and, and, and go and care for those around you. Take initiative to build those relationships and those with, with those in your life. Look around you for those in the church that, may, that you may not know. Be willing to get out of your way, get out of your comfort zone to know them. And, I, and yes, this is... It might be uncomfortable and it may be awkward for a while. But be willing to take initiative to build these godly relationships in the church. This means that you may not hang out with your usual group of people for a while, and that's okay. You know, if they're close with you, you can, you can have like a week or two off and spend time with other people. And, the rea- and why we should do this is because we are a family of God. We should go beyond just mere acquaintances. You know, people shouldn't just come here and think, oh, they're, they're just all friends. No, we're a family. We should know each other, and we need to treat each other as such. Be willing to take initiative. Lastly, be willing to forgive. You need to be, I, this, this goes beyond just overlooking the wrongs. Part of demonstrating love is that, in the body is that you cover sin with love. We see that in 1 Peter 4, 8, that love covers a multitude of sin. Proverbs 10, 12 says exactly the same thing. We know that Jesus tells us to forgive because if we don't forgive, then the Father will not forgive us of our sins. Sometimes I feel that people harbor so much anger and hatred toward those in the church that I worry that they will die with this false hope that they are saved. They can list all the doctrine. They could bring up all these Bible verses, how, oh yeah, salvation is by faith, but they ignore these passages about how they need to love one another, and then they die, and they say, Lord, Lord, didn't I, didn't I memorize all these doctrines? Didn't I go to church? And he's like, well, no, depart from me before I never knew you, because if you knew who God is, if you, knew that, if you know that God is a God of love, you will love those around you. Nothing shows greater love than you, when you're willing to forgive. It goes beyond just being patient when someone has sinned. It's, it's letting those sins go, letting those offenses go. 
you're never more like our Father than when you forgive people that sin against you. People will sin against you, and you will need to be willing to forgive. And not just passively say, oh, I have forgiven, and that's it. No, when they ask for forgiveness or you ask for, to reconcile a relationship, you build upon that. You actually work on it. You try your best to overcome evil with good. In fact, if you know that someone is, has sinned against you, or you have beef with someone in the church, you shouldn't even be going to church on Sunday and offering your offerings to him. Matthew 5 tells us that if you have a problem with someone, then you need to go and reconcile that with that person before you, make, you give your offerings to the Lord. If you choose not to forgive, you are sinning against the Lord. So you need to be willing to forgive. This is just some of these practical ways. Again, like there could be more in your life that you think about. These are just some examples and practical ways that we can think about. But when you look at all five of those, you realize that all of these things are wrapped up in the gospel. Jesus shown tremendous patience toward you so that you can be made right with him. Jesus spoke encouraging words to you by, giving you, by telling you that there is a hope in salvation, that you can be made right with him. Jesus expended himself for you through the substitutionary work on the cross. Jesus took initiative in saving you by choosing you before the foundation of the world. And Jesus forgave you for your sins by washing your sins clean by his own blood. This is why the things must drive this is why the gospel should drive you to obedience. If you look to the gospel, if you start thinking deeply about the gospel, it should change your heart. And then that, and it should overflow with the love for the Lord and the way that you love other people. The greater the gospel is in your own life, the more evident it will be in your life. The gospel of Christ is the gospel of love, and love should be overflowing and dominate your life. This love test is revealed in Scripture and must be something that we always reflect upon in our own lives. Obedience to love, those that are in the church, is evident, an evidence that you are a person that belongs in the kingdom of God. Obedience is a friend of assurance. Remember, this, con- this whole book, if you were to summarize this book in one word, what is the point of this book? It's assurance. You need to test yourself and see if you are walking in obedience. Do you love those that are in the church? If you understand God's love for you, you will love those that he redeemed. This, is, this type of obedience to love, that are in, love those that are in the church provides a contrast to those that are living in darkness. If you lack love for those within the context of the church body, you need to seriously consider, consider whether or not you belong to the Lord. If God's love is real to you and it truly moves you, then the natural result is that you'll be marked by love. This is how you pass the love test. Just look at your relationship with those around you. Do you love your brothers and sisters in the faith? If not, then there's a strong possibility that the gospels, the love that's shown in the gospel have not fully impacted your life. You need to repent, not just showing, not being nice to one another, but you need to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. Lord, we, are, we know that we fall short in your commands to love. Lord, may we meditate on the gospel daily, not in a superficial way, but to really dive deep into the gospels and think about how we should live out our life in light of the gospel. Lord, we want to be people that desire to love in the way that you want us to love. 
And we know we're, we have our moments where we fall short. And for those moments that we do fall short, we ask for a broken and contrite heart that we can repent of it quickly so that we could be walking close, uh, walking closely with you, Lord. And Lord, I pray for myself and for everyone here, if there are any moments where we're harboring any sin or any hatred towards a brother or sister, may we uh, either reconcile with the other individual or we ask for, or we just let it go, Lord. We just give it up to you. But we are we're so fickle with our affections for you. Lord, remind us each week as we um, study your word that we need to love the way that you love. May we be found faithful in this way. Lord, we thank you for your son, for sending him to die on the cross for us, giving us a template of what true love looks like. Not the way that the world loves, but the way that you love, Lord. Thank you for this time that we have. And be with us um, this uh, during our discussion time, that, uh, that our words will be filled with grace and love and maybe encouraging to one another. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so... For this evening, we're going to do something a little bit different. You have the same discussion groups, but instead of asking questions, I have one question. Uh, okay. <laughs> so basically, this is the application point. The question is, which of the following can I do better in the upcoming week? Again, this assumes that you are a Christian. This assumes that you've already placed your faith in Christ. If you haven't done that, then none of these questions matter, will matter to you. But if you have placed your faith in Christ and... Um, you know, you, we're all going to be struggling with different things in terms of how to fulfill this. Within your groups, the groups that you've established in the, in the last few weeks, talk about which one you want to work on this coming week. You know, what, what you, Sunday's coming up, you're going to see different brothers and sisters in church. Which one do you want to practice so that you can demonstrate and live a life of love? Uh, I'm going to leave these up here. You guys can break up between, um, I think, your, your groups. If you don't have a group, just join one. Uh,